0: is Puerto Rico going to get their independence? I at least hope that they
1: get another governor because the last one made a pretty big mistake. And I I don't think Puerto Rico is going to go independent though.
0: You think they'll, they'll stay as a territory of the United States do not to declare themselves the brand new nation of Puerto Rico or anything like that?
1: No, I think they're going to stay a part of the United States because most of the people that believe, at least from what I've heard of the independence part of Puerto Rico, are kind of like, the older folks in Puerto Rico that would more not to say that they're not like younger folks as well, but it seems to be a more like top heavy kind of um, thought. So I think that as more young people come about, it's going to be more of like a tie to the U.S. kind of thing.
0: Interesting. Well, tell me this is uh, is is throwing out an old governor a, a good reason for civil disobedience. Mm, well, I would call the disobedience
1: that happened in Puerto Rico not very civil, but perhaps civil disobedience would have been a good option
0: there. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res?, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ethan Delves. I'm a humanities teacher and debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. Today, Ethan and I are going to be discussing the uh, L- the Lincoln-Douglas Novice Resolution Resolved. Civil disobedience in a democracy is morally justified. Such a good resolution. I love this one. It really is. I know it's one you're pretty familiar with.
1: Yeah, I've, this was my first Novice LD resolution and like eighth grade maybe and then ninth grade like I've done this for all my novice years so it's a good one
0: yeah and in our class this year I know I had you revise this case just to kind of see what you would tweak now after a couple more years of experience yeah that's right that's right so uh, before we get into it, we do have a couple things that we need to mention about what's happening here at What's the Res. We've got some new developments, some new things that we've been trying out and things we've been growing on. Ethan, tell everybody about our Friday live debate. Yep. So every Friday, we're partnered with
1: CastBox, which is a podcast hosting platform that also offers some live streaming services, the audio live streaming services. Every Friday at 9.55, Josh and I debate and we do IPDA format, so it's about a 28-minute round that you can tune in and listen to. We do it during our third period in the school day. And we pick the resolution earlier in the week and just
0: prepare some pretty quick cases and just hash out a good debate. Yeah, they've been a lot of fun. And if you want to keep uh, find out more about those, uh, do like us in, uh either uh, Facebook, Reddit, yep. uh, Twitter, or Instagram. And we will be posting the links to all four of those. Uh, each Friday at about 9:45. Uh, so if you like us, you'll get a notification that we've got one of those going on. The other big thing that we've been doing over this past summer is developing a channel of premium content. We're calling these what's the res premium debates where we enjoy debating so much that we thought there might be other people who enjoy uh, listening to people debate real topics. So part of the idea behind the premium debates is that these are not content experts. There's another podcast, uh, uh, Intellect Squared, that does debates between content experts, which is not really what we're trying to do. We believe that debate is an excellent exercise to help people see multiple sides of the issues but that you don't really need to have a PhD in the topic in order to discuss it or understand it. So in the premium debates, we've got real debates by real people, where folks who are interested in playing the game of debate have read a little bit, thought a little bit about the topic, and then they prepare cases, and they come together and they hash it out. And uh, so far, all of our debates have been between adults, and Ethan's working on analysis episodes for those. Ethan, tell us a bit about those.
1: those. So the analysis episodes are basically me listening to Josh's debate with one of his adult debaters' opponents, and I will go through and clip the debate so that you can hear sort of a play-by-play of the round, and I'll discuss from a debater's perspective why certain arguments are used, certain analogies are used, and why they're effective or ineffective, and flow the round and come to a decision at the end with a justification as to why. So it's like it's basically a debater's perspective on a resolution being debated.
0: Which I think could be a great resource for clubs or teams or novice practitioners who are trying to develop a set of varsity-level skills. By watching and listening, or by really not watching, but listening to our premium debates, you can get flowing practice, you can become more familiar with what exactly goes into constructive speeches, cross-examination, and rebuttal speeches. Ethan's analysis episodes give you really the varsity debater perspective on those debates. You can access those on our premium uh, channel through Podbean. Those cost uh, $3 a month or $30 for a year-long pass. It's a great investment in uh, enhancing your debate skills. And with that,
1: Let's get into LD. Let's do it. I'm ready to talk about this resolution.
0: All right. So, Ethan, tell tell us a little about LD. What does it mean that when people say LD is really a values debate? That
1: means that rather than solely evidence that you bring to the round, LD is a separate type of debate that focuses on a central principle and having all of your arguments connect to that principle so that, that that idea will be upheld and your case is kind of more fluid and connected in that way. So, for like an example... If I was arguing we could do civil disobedience, what I would do is in order to judge who wins the round, you need a value because you could easily say one thing, you could easily say another thing. But your value stays at the top and you have arguments to follow it. And then once those arguments support your value, it's really easy for the judge to see who wins the round in a lot of cases, even though a lot of rounds can be closed as well. But LD is my favorite type of debate. I've stuck – I have did a little bit of public forum, but I've mostly stuck with LD just because I really like to argue – Um, from a philosophical perspective and utilize the extra features that LD brings in my rounds. So.
0: And I'm sure we'll get into this a bit more later on, but it's it's the philosophy angle is kind of tricky for LD because that, yeah. that's part of the origins of LD. Uh, LD was formed in the 1970s. It was one of the many responses to people getting overly detailed in policy debates. So Lincoln Douglas was developed through uh, then, I believe, it was called the National Forensics League, what today is the National Speech and Debate Association. They developed LD as really a way to uh, enhance public communication in debate and also help students re- Realize the connection between philosophical principles and political action. And those two things really should go hand in hand, where your principles inform your actions, your actions align with your principles. And so by Establishing that, that really gives LD this particular framework that we'll get into in a few moments with a value, a value criterion, and contention arrangement.
1: It's definitely hard to explain without an example because LD is kind of in itself a lofty idea with a principle at the top and arguments to follow. But once you attribute it to a couple of different scenarios and resolutions, it's a lot easier to understand.
0: Uh, that's right. Now, uh, of course, this summer we met uh, a bunch of folks at the uh, Coolidge Cup tournament. I know, Ethan, you did a, an interview with David Peru, Peru. Peru yeah. uh, and he helped us with a lot of the perspective on what's going on with progressive debate. I know there's, I've seen coaches use that terminology too, where there's traditional LD and there's progressive LD. Now, how would you distinguish the difference, Ethan?
1: I would say traditional LD came for or traditional debate came first and progressive is attempting to make reforms on traditional debate, but it ends up changing the purpose a little bit. So traditional debate focuses on more of a decently paced kind of round with a true value at the top and contentions to follow. Progressive debate gets into a, more of the competition aspect of debate where you see technicalities are weighed a lot more in rounds and there's a specific way to do things. And there's also a lot of other things you can argue that are not necessarily relevant to the arguments at hand, but there are cases that you can make against the opponent's case that don't necessarily flow under the resolution. So kind of as a more general principle, it's reforms on traditional debate that don't necessarily follow what debate is. So Probably from the way I'm describing it, you can tell that I'm not a huge fan of progressive debate, but I know a lot of people that are, and that do really well at it as well.
0: Here, I was just thinking, you're actually giving progressive debate a pretty fair I'm trying shake. to give it a
1: chance, yeah, because if you compete in the NSDA, NSDA, it is actually a lot more traditional than you would originally suspect, which is what David Peru taught me. But there are a lot of circuits out there that do follow progressive debate where it's a lot more heavily practiced mm-hmm. and you can do a ton of different things that don't necessarily relate to the resolution. mean
0: so My understanding of progressive debate in LD is that it tends to essentially reject the importance of the value and it essentially replaces uh, LD as a philosophical debate with really making it into a one-man policy debate. Where it's really all about the facts and the evidence and the political ramifications. And it really just ignores the value proposition that is the resolution at the heart of the, of the debate.
1: I would say a lot of progressive debates are more fast-paced is one thing. And secondly, the val- I wouldn't say it necessarily throws out the value. I think what it does is opens up the opportunity for a debater to throw out the value when they feel it's necessary that it's going to help them win. And it, that does happen a lot pretty often. So I would say that I can see your perspective for when it throws out the value, but in reality, I think it opens up a lot of other argumentation opportunities that are not solely focused on the arguments at hand.
0: Well, so certainly for our listeners, and I, I suspect hopefully with this episode we attract a lot of folks who are trying to figure out Lincoln Douglas for the first time since we're doing this on novice resolution. Uh, I, I would hope that you would definitely become very familiar with traditional LD before you make the leap into progressive LD. There's a lot to be admired in the skill and the precision that progressive debaters use. Uh, I don't I, I want to encourage my students especially to really master the traditional forms before they try to speed it up and make Maybe play with some different techniques that are really antithetical to the heart of traditional debate.
1: I would almost call traditional LD kind of an art, and then I would call progressive a game, because debate is debate is always a game. But traditional LD focuses on the really the, the essential aspects of debate and what how you connect a higher principle to the arguments that you're making. So how can I make arguments one, two, and three relate to something that I value or my case values and relate it to the resolution? But in progressive debate, you can still have that but it is a lot more technical and there's different strategies that you can use to get around what your opponent is saying. Some of them are really effective that i've seen in some higher uh, higher up rounds or what i've heard from people who have been in progressive circuits so i would i would use an art to game analogy and you can completely call that a false analogy if you want but i, I think
0: there's something to that okay uh, i like the distinction there where an art is usually something that is a bit more worthwhile in and of itself and a game is a is obviously a little bit subordinate to an art i think an art is something higher of course we've been reading socrates together the last few weeks in philosophy class so it might be
1: kind of stuck in our brains
0: maybe so Play has a lot to say about arts and what counts as an art and so on. But anyway, let's let's move on to uh, get maybe a little bit closer to our resolution analysis. We've already kind of hinted at this, uh, but I we the first thing we need to really touch on is a value. And you've used the language of a, a principle, which I like. Right. Typically, I think a value is a single word, at most a very short phrase. I've seen people use a phrase like rule of law. I've also seen liberty or democracy or democratic freedom. I've seen all of those as values. But that value really becomes the highest principle that is being advocated by the case. And in Lincoln Douglas, both the affirmative and negative teams write their cases are urging a value. So in traditional LD, this really becomes each side is advocating their value as the highest goal of the round.
1: I would, to put this in kind of an example kind of way, because I know that this is a novice resolution, so these may be some first-time debaters or Mm -hmm. even some debaters that have done it a couple of times and just want to solidify the idea. If I took the example of my beautiful Gatorade water bottle that I have here, it's made of plastic (laughs) and it holds my water, and I wanted to make a case that making water bottles is good. So making green Gatorade bottles is good. If I were on affirmative saying that it was good, my value would be convenience, because it's very convenient and cheap for me to buy this water bottle. All of my arguments would fall under why it's convenient and therefore it's good for me to to make this water bottle, or for Gatorade, I guess, to make this water bottle. But if I was on neg, I could make the argument an environmental value, or maybe like stewardship of the planet. Like that's never used as a value, but you know what I mean? So you could say something environmental. And the reason I would make that my neg value is because making plastic water bottles is bad because it has these environmental repercussions. So that's kind of the idea of a value is you want to connect all of your arguments to a central principle that defines your side of the debate. And there's okay. a Gatorade water bottle example.
0: There we go. Excellent. Excellent. So I guess really the real question then becomes, I, know, I don't know how widely used this is, but certainly here in North Carolina, every time we've gone out to a, to a tournament on LD, people use this idea of a value criterion. What's a value criterion, Ethan?
1: A criterion is a way that you measure whether or not your value is achieved. And it's not as tangible as I would say that it's it sounds. I know the very first time you described a criterion to me, it was something about like hearing aids or something. And then you said the way you know if you've achieved your value of good hearing is if you pass this hearing test. If you want to, if your value is hearing, then passing this hearing test would help measure whether or not you've achieved good hearing, which is a good way to kind of hash out the pr- the principle of a value criterion. Not to be redundant in my language, but a value criterion is is typically used in a more vague kind of way. So if I had rule of law, perhaps, as my value, or actually, yeah, let's, let's stick with rule of law, then perhaps your value criterion would be something like this, something to do with incarceration, or maybe these, like, I don't know. Can you, can you think of a criterion for that? I'm kind of getting lost in my own example. Well,
0: uh, incarceration rates might be a good way then to see rule of law in action. If I'm running a case that argues uh, rule of law needs to be strengthened... And maybe I, so. I say rule of law is important. We currently have less of it. We need more. And my arguments are really about rule of law uh, being a good thing. Then a way to see that might be incarceration rates, for, or or maybe uh, or and, and maybe on the flip side, uh, maybe more accurate prison sentencing rates or something. But I want to tr- the value criterion. The hearing aid thing was probably a terrible example, but it is an attempt to try and point to a concrete way of seeing an abstract truth. I, I can
1: agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And I think rule of law is typically used as more of a criterion because people would use that with justice and they say, look, it's the government's responsibility to enact justice and here's how they do it, by rule of law. So rule of law is like a method of achieving your value yeah. and it's a good well, measurement. We'll, too. And
0: we'll get into some other examples as we go, but uh, now... I've seen people structure debate cases in at least these two ways, and I'm curious if you've seen more. I've seen some that seem to have a very smooth, fluid structure where they sort of go a bit further in on the rhetoric, and they kind of move smoothly from main point to subpoints and subpoint that transitions to second point and so on. I've seen other people who make very effective use of a really clear, blunt structure. Judge, my first point is subpoint one. Subpoint point two, and it's as if they have it written in an outline form and they just use that outline for clarity and they don't worry so much about the flourishes. What Have you seen any different structures? So
1: as far as methods, of, I think those would be a good way to describe methods of delivering a case. You could do a nice rhetorical flow. A lot of people just write it out in large speeches. Usually you'll see if someone transferred from a different type of debate to LD, they'll stick with their outline pattern and it just kind of comes along with them. But as far as writing arguments go, one thing I see, because... So that being a method of delivering cases, one method I see of writing cases would be that someone establishes their value and criterion and then has three completely unrelated arguments to show the benefit of their side in all of these different fields, or they have one complete sort of story or narrative that tells, and each argument kind of plugs into another one. I see you use that a lot, and it's also an older form of argumentation that I've never tried, but I don't, I'm not against it in any way, I've just never tried it.
0: Uh, Yeah, I I find that to be a pretty effective way, because it builds... Uh, but its it does have the inherent weakness that if the whole case is tied together, one fatal flaw in the structure uh, will c- collapse the entire case. Whereas yeah. your three unrelated pieces then are – they're smaller and they're probably weaker, but they do have – they're each standing more independently.
1: I think for LD debate – it, especially if you're competing in a traditional circuit, the best way to go is the more rhetorical way. Just make sure that you're organized because being robotically organized does not convince the judge of a higher moral principle. It's just you're, the purpose of LD is to make it almost more human in a way because humans connect what they believe in or their arguments and contentions to certain values that they hold. So you're kind of taking away of the humanness aspect of this style of debate by being more robotic in your delivery. So you, the whole the idea of LD and the delivery of LD kind of has to be in coincidence and like together
0: all of which fits really well with the name of the style because it is of course named after abraham lincoln and stephen douglas and their famous debates in uh, the 1840s i believe in missouri where uh, it's, it's hard to even imagine this today but they had these series of debates where people would go and watch and each of them had an hour and a half speaking time for constructive 45 minutes for rebuttal oh, and people would literally stand and listen to all of this. The, the, the historical accounts of the debates involve this silent audiences in the hundreds, in some cases, thousands who are listening. This is the day before microphone amplification. I, I just, I can hardly imagine. And it's, I've read a few of those debate, a few of their, uh, their, their manuscripts. They're usually bound together. They're easy to find online if anybody's curious, but I, it, Anyway, the point being that this is intended to be a little bit more of a rhetorical style. That, that does matter, should matter for LD, I think.
1: I completely agree.
0: All right, well, let's, let's actually get into it. We've done lots about LD. Uh, every year, the National Speech and Debate Association releases the same novice resolution, which I think is pretty cool because it lets varsity people help novices learn the ropes, and it helps everybody start from a common common playbook in a way. And there are lots of sample cases floating around the Internet. Various debate wikis have lots of these around. Uh, so let's get into it. Uh, I thought we should start with key terms. But first off, Ethan, could you read us the resolution one more time? Sure. The resolution
1: is civil disobedience in a democracy is morally justified.
0: All right, so I, I think we've really got three phrases here that we need to define as far as our key terms go. Civil disobedience, democracy, and morally justified. What would you want to do with civil disobedience? What, what do you see going on in that phrase?
1: I This comes from the case that I wrote. Um, it was last year, the case that I used. So this is not necessarily the concrete definition, but an aspect that I would add to the definition when you get into the debate people go crazy over exactly like, what civil disobedience is and it's like it's nonviolent or it's this degree and it's it gets really it's a really good debate and it has a really good clash one thing that i noticed about civil disobedience is that it's not intentional refusal of the law for one's own purposes mm. but instead it's being civilly disobedient to the law for the purpose of educating the public towards a common goal so you can go ahead and give the concrete definition but i just want to throw that out there as like for thought when you 're no, over I the think that's a, that,
0: that's key because that that keeps it so if, if I simply refuse to pay a parking ticket because I really don 't want to pay my parking ticket that 's not an act of civil disobedience but it might rise to an act of civil disobedience if i am if I 've made a case that actually police are targeting me and my friends and are giving all of us we 've gotten hundreds of parking tickets because we 're being targeted by the police for some reason and then we just collectively refuse to pay our parking tickets, that might rise to a level of civil disobedience because it's trying to show that there's some unjust action happening here.
1: I think one great thing about this resolution is that there's three clearly like needed-to-be-defined terms, civil disobedience, democracy, and morally justified, and they're very easy to identify in this resolution, but all of them are probably going to be defined in a different way. So it teaches yeah. young debaters to be able to fight for their definitions and, and make a case under their specific definitions. And there's, there's so much ground on both sides too. It's just a great resolution. So I I wish I could debate it again, but
0: not your your novice years are done. So, uh, I would look at civil disobedience as, uh, having a few different pieces involved. First piece is it's gotta be intentional. This is intentional disobedience of the law for the purpose of fighting some sort of injustice. Now this, it's also a key part of this concept that it is nonviolent. The civil disobedience cannot be violent. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi both really set the parameters of what constitutes civil disobedience. And they defined it as a concept in opposition to revolution. Where revolution is a, is a violent movement for change, civil disobedience is an attempt to change something within a system. Which is really where the democracy part is going to come into play. And we'll get there in just a minute. But typically, civil disobedience is trying to provoke change inside the society. That's where the civil part is coming from, the civitas, the city. Why do you keep
1: using the Latin for everything?
0: Oh, we were somewhere the other day and... Yes, uh, because you did
1: this in the premium episode. You should totally listen to premium debates. And I just roasted you for it on
0: the... Well, you did. We were somewhere the other day and someone else... Used an etymological definition and you didn't protest, and I wanted to rib you for it, and I forgot about Who it. Who was it? And I think it was Dr. Begley. Because oh. he also does that a lot. But he, of course, is a classics professor, so there it is. Uh, anyway, back to civil disobedience. It is, civil disobedience is typically against some obvious inequality or injustice. And it is, I think you were right to, I think you're absolutely right to mention that it's gotta be for a broader purpose. At the point where it's an individual benefit it's not it has not risen to the level of civil disobedience. Something just for an individual benefit is going to have a selfish motivation that's going to keep it from being morally justified
1: so it has to be it has to be a public action towards a, a goal and you yeah. well in most cases, or at least all cases that we've used in the affirmative case, towards a, a goal to eliminate some sort of oppression.
0: Right. I mean, And the, we'll get into this in a bit more, but I would mention it now. Uh, the classic examples usually come out of the civil rights movement, whether we're talking about sit-ins, uh, Rosa Parks' courageous decision uh, to sit in the front of the bus that launched a movement, the March on Washington, D.C., uh, the refusal to abide by these unjust laws. Now, the other piece that really comes out of civil disobedience is that it must also have the the person who is civilly disobedient must be willing to accept whatever legal consequences come their way. Right. That's that's uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who we'll talk about a little bit later as well, uh, because things have changed with Dr. King and his record over the last year. So uh, we'll get to that. But he wrote his most famous piece of writing. is called Letter from a Birmingham Jail where he, lay, he really lays out in great detail this idea of civil disobedience and establishing it as something that's in pursuit of justice, but part of the piece that he thinks makes it different from revolution, the revolutionary is, willing, uh, is not willing to really suffer for his cause. The person who is civilly disobedient must take the consequences that the law brings because he's not trying to overthrow the law. He's wanting to correct an unjust law So his suffering becomes a testimony to the truth of what he's doing.
1: And it's even more interesting because civil disobedience is nonviolent, but we just had an LD resolution about violent revolution being justified, or necessary, or something Uh, like that. We did, yeah. yeah. The
0: the NSDA National Resolution for Varsity. It was literally, it was almost the inverse of this novice resolution. I guess
1: NSDA just loves, you know, eliminating Uh, oppression.
0: Oh, there's there's something really fun to debate about revolutionary ideas. Yeah. Okay, well, Ethan, where does democracy come in? Because we've got, if we've done, if we've got civil disobedience, why are we worried about it being in a democracy?
1: Because it's ruled by the people. So then, democracy being ruled by the people means that the people get determine get to determine what the laws are. Now there is. There is a caveat to that, and that's it. it's the majority of people is what's important here. But regardless, it's ruled by the people is the intention of it. So when something's going wrong and it seems that the government's made an incorrect decision or a bad decision, an oppressive decision, it's up to the people to fix it, which is the original, like, ideal intent of democracy. But, um... I think the affirmative case's kind of idea here is that the majority can be wrong. It's probably one of their one of their main
0: right. values
1: and, and that that's
0: really here. what the the fact that the people can change the law if enough people believe that something is unjust is critical for this case, because we've got plenty of examples in more recent, uh, really over just over the last century. Well, really, say 120 years. We go back to 1900 from 1900 to today. I can think of three really important changes that have happened, and that. uh, in that exact way where there've been a variety of movements to try and convince people that the way we've done something is unjust. Uh, One of those is prohibition, oddly enough, where uh, the temperance movement of the late 1800s attempted to persuade a lot of people that uh, it was access to alcohol that enabled husbands to beat wives and abandon their families. So the just action would be to forbid the sale of alcohol. Well, we tried that as a country, and then decided twenty years later that that was a terrible idea. It just drove alcohol into the black
1: didn't, market. Didn't Dr. Selena say that some of all of like the craziest things are related to like tequila or alcohol? Like Mexico had a similar thing forgot, with forgot tequila. I forgot to ask him about that, oh, night. but
0: yes, yes, he did. He's got another talk where he, he He did focus on that, the tequila revolution, the vodka moment, something oh like that. Gosh. He had a string of great lines for that. Uh, but women's suffrage is another one like that where there was just literally a movement over a 50 60 year period to really change the mind of an awful lot of people mostly men in this case to give them to convince them that they needed to let their wives their daughters and their sisters their friends be able to vote um, more recently in the 1960s we had the uh, a big legislative change to lower the voting age to 18 so For this resolution, I think the key part about the democracy is that it really does enable change. It does mean that if enough people are convinced that something is wrong, we can change that. Whereas if this was civil disobedience in a dictatorship or in a monarchy or in some other kind of government, it would be less possible to change. That would probably end really badly. It would. But here we're looking at this is a democracy. Change is possible. It actually happens all the time. But then
1: the thing is, is how exactly do we go about this change? And affirmative says civil disobedience, and negative will almost always say just vote for something, and then eventually it'll happen if enough people believe in it. But the, it comes to the point where where do you draw the line where something is is bad enough or oppressive enough to not warrant a vote but warrant people to intentionally break the law and face the consequences of right,
0: it. Right, which could very well on neg, uh, well, which and on AF, you could look at democracy and look at the fact that uh, – our democracy, particularly the United States, we have pretty big issues with lobbying, uh, where, where the demo- and that, that the money controls who is able to advertise, and so if people don't have millions and millions of dollars, they can't get their issues or their names out for public interest. Doesn't mean it always goes that way, but that's typically the case. So maybe civil disobedience is necessary when an issue has been suppressed by a corporation or corporate interest or something of that nature.
1: I think it's a good time probably to move on to Morally Justified, and I think you should do this because you are the philosopher here. (laughs) And you're closer to a philosopher than I am, and you certainly know your way around morality. So
0: Okay. Uh, so I would I would start with re- with noting uh, that the compound term morally justified definitively identifies this proposition as a proposition of value. We're not declaring a fact. We're not decreeing a new policy. We are stating that something is morally justified. We are stating that this is a value. And when we look at morally justified, I think that's going to establish the subject of the sentence, civil disobedience in a democracy. What we're saying about the subject is that it is, in fact, good. It is something that we as human beings can affirm as a moral action. This is the right thing to do or to be done. And this is the greatest place.
1: Like with the word morally justified in here, this is is – All the way of values debate. So if you have two completely conflicting values, which this resolution really helps to create, go up there in cross examination and just ask someone why is your value like why is your value a good judgment of what's moral and not moral? But I'll get to that later. I'm I'm very excited to talk about some cross-ex questions.
0: So we're looking then if this establishes a good uh, that then places a moral question at the heart of the debate. Uh, I think at the heart of this debate we begin with is it morally right to disobey the law? If the answer there is yes, how do we have a society that's governed by rule of law? At what point can people not disobey the law and we still have a recognizable group of people that are organized together for common goals? Well, but what happens when the law is wrong? Can we be governed by rule of law and yet recognize that laws are imperfect? Can we recognize that injustice does in fact occur Are we capable of fixing an unjust law without destroying our entire system of law? Well, what do we do? How do we even evaluate the law? And are we talking about the law as a system of man-made laws or are we talking about something higher than that? I mentioned earlier, we've been reading Plato in philosophy class, so I thought of, when I was putting this together, I initially thought of, are we thinking of almost a Platonic sense of justice with a capital J that all human justices are to be compared with? Are we talking about something that's higher, something beyond the law? Or are we just talking about man-made laws as the epitome of, of law? Well, all of this is at the heart of this debate. And so both sides have to grapple with the ultimate questions of human existence, What actually makes something good? What makes it right? And if so, are we obligated to do what we actually agree is good and right?
1: And for traditional LD debate, just completely embrace this question because that's what this type of debate is all for. Like you won't see this in public forum or policy or congressional or anything. It's specifically unique to LD where you get to embrace the moral question and show why your arguments support your value and therefore the the morality of the debate.
0: Mm So those then are some resolutional idea or not resolution but definitional arguments. Um, I I did a bit of a a Facebook question to the uh, National Debate Coaches Association group earlier today. So I want to do a quick uh, shout outs to two coaches who uh, offered some advice to uh, to uh, to our new debaters, uh, folks listening to this. Uh, So first of those is Ben Both and Ethan. You know Ben. Who's what? What are his credentials? He is a he's
1: a very well-recognized debate coach and he teaches at University of Texas. Is that right? Southern Methodist
0: University which is in Texas. Sorry, my bad.
1: (laughs) yes, and he, he's been a debate coach for a really long time as well. And he's couple of
0: 30 years, I believe.
1: Yeah, and he's taught in lots of different areas, and he comes to the Coolidge Foundation every year to help coach the debaters and coach the judges as well. And he's he's one of like the centerpieces of the, what the Coolidge Foundation kind of runs on because he makes sure that the debaters know what they're doing and the judges know what they're doing so everything can run really smoothly. And he's... A very knowledgeable debate yeah. coach, and he's really he, uh, great.
0: Before you went to Southern Methodist University, Dr. Roth was at the uh, Ohio Uni- – no, Miami University of Ohio. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Back up. It, 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 it always got confusing because people would say, oh, I'm at Miami University. I'm like, dang, you came a long way to come to the Indiana University tournament or the uh, – uh, oh, what was the one um, – there was, one in, there was one in Ohio that we went to that was, I'm blanking on the name of the school, Ball State University's tournament. Like, you came all the way from Miami. Oh, no, 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 no. Miami University of Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Voth was there. He actually coached, uh, oh my goodness. So if, uh, if in some odd circumstance Omar Orme ever hears this episode, here's a shout out to Omar. Because Dr. Voth coached a guy that I was terrified of in my own competitive days. Omar was a, uh, he did extemp and that was my event. If Omar's name was on the list, we all knew that none of us were getting first place. Omar always got first place. And he, he was also a great guy. Uh, Dr. Voth coached him. So anyway, Dr. Voth has a couple pieces of advice I'll just read uh, from him. Uh, he says, first, don't forget to watch the final round of debate in the movie The Great Debaters. It is pretty much this resolution, and it's fairly stirring. It brings a distinct angle to the study that students will likely enjoy. The section of the movie is probably 15 minutes long. So you even get to watch a movie with this resolution. Yeah, it's great. Uh, He also has a more specific suggestion. uh, Quote, I would also recommend studying the exchanges between James Farmer and Malcolm X on this question. Probably observable in the 1962 and 1963 debates between the two men. So that's pretty exciting. Uh, our second coach with advice is a guy named Jeff Ramdas that I don't know at all, so shout out to Jeff. Glad you could uh, had some advice for us. Ethan, what advice did uh, did Jeff send him? He said, the way we define terms
1: define what we debate. We might know the topic overall, but whoever defines the terms better controls the case. So he poses a question here. He says, who are we trying to convince? Naive debaters will think we are convincing the opponent that we are right, but in reality, the focus is the judge.
0: That's so good. That is really good. Yeah. I don't I'm just like
1: taking a moment to let that sink in. So you go ahead and let's say something.
0: I just I, – I don't know how many times I have seen debaters get distracted from the judge and they will focus on the opponent. And really, when I particularly if it's, if it's a round that I'm judging, they have to win me. Yeah. They, they don't need to get stuck in opposing the opponent, but they'll need to oppose the opponent to do their job. But really, they should be trying to win my ballot, and the, the students that remember that are the ones that I think do the best.
1: Yeah, man, what great advice. That's awesome.
0: All right, so with that, uh, let's get into some case structure suggestions, because again, we're, we're aiming this episode to people who are brand new to LD and are looking at this. So uh, Ethan, how, what, how, would, how, how should they structure their
1: case? So the the very first time I did this my case was horribly structured it was actually this resolution was my very first debate ever at a tournament and I went up there my hands were literally shaking and I won that round simply because the guy brought up new information in the final speech never let anyone do that if someone brings up information in the rebuttal speech just say it to the judge and you're good to go so anyways that's my like a little opening story there to structure the case what you want to do, especially for LD, if you're, going to, if you're going to give it that good rhetorical effect, you're going to combine your rhetoric with your arguments and give a really comprehensive case, which is, I would argue, the ideal way to do it. You're going to want some sort of introduction. A, good, a lot of people start their introductions with quotes. You don't necessarily have to do that. But what we want your introduction to do is, is kind of set the grounds and set the affirmative view for the entire round. And then your conclusion or the negative either, view. Or the negative view. So I'm stuck on affirmative because it's yep, so, yep. like... yeah. Or the negative view for the round, so the case's view for the round. And your introduction doesn't have to go through any specific arguments. It can be really general, but it's just to get into the judge's head what exactly, what route are you taking and what what specific stance of the resolution you're taking. After that, you're going to want to eventually get to some definitions. So you define all the terms. You have civil disobedience, democracy, morally justified, and especially for these definitions, you're going to need some good sources or a good way to back that up because as Jeff recommended to us, whoever defines the terms controls the debate, so you're going to want to focus on that. So you go introduction flows into definitions, flows into the value of the case. Spend a decent amount of time on this. This is where you establish that overall principle that's really essential to the round, and then immediately after that, you give your criterion. Make sure you define both of those. After that, you can move on to your contentions, or in Lincoln-Douglas, I guess you would call them arguments, right? They're not contentions in Lincoln-Douglas? No, I think contentions. Contentions, Okay, contentions.
0: Contention language—you uh, you borrowed contention language from LD, and it started creeping into public forum. Really? That's... I think so, because I, I best I most see that in LD.
1: Okay, so but yes. I think
0: it means the same thing. It's just a way of naming your argument.
1: So then you go into your contentions. I usually like to do typically two or three. I give a claim, which is the, the specific argument I'm giving. Civil disobedience is morally justified because it— helps gets, get rid of oppression. I don't know, like that's an example claim. It may not be like a good one, but it's an example. So there's the claim, you give evidence. So examples, historical examples are great. And in some debates, maybe not particularly this one, analogies are really good to help win over the judge because they can relate it to something that's even more tangible and relatable. So, it, you start off with the introduction, go to definitions, value, value criterion, and into contentions, all of which have specific examples under them. And you're not gonna wanna end your case by being in the middle of a contention or right after you're finishing a contention. It's just not, it doesn't give that nice comprehensive like circular flow to it you want to start with the introduction go through your case and then the conclusion is supposed to be a statement it'd be even better if it was memorized because then you can look at the judge while you're doing it very compelling so true you're telling the judge why your case needs to take precedence and win the round and especially in later speeches your conclusion brings the entire case together and even maybe tie it back to your introduction and if you use a quote that's a great time to bring up the quote again because that just it just sounds awesome
0: but One of the things that I would suggest for LD especially is that you want to – the tighter your structure is, particularly in the debater's mind, the more you know where you are, the better you are able to help the judge know where you are. And the better you're able to tell a compelling story with your argument.
1: It's not necessarily a bad thing to organize your case as an outline. I, to, I, from the beginning of debate and still to today, I organize my debate in an outline, but I fill in my speech in the outline. So I am, it's pretty much word for word on the paper, and as I've gotten like a little bit further into my debate like journey, I guess you could say. I was able to put a little less words and kind of fill them in and use whatever comes naturally mm-hmm. at that time. But it's, you should definitely keep your debate in an outline of some sort, but have pretty comprehensive ideas written down. So you're organized and you know where you are, which will also then flow to help your judge know where they are, right. but you still have the rhetoric part that's very important in this type of debate.
0: Now, and, and really a note about that rhetoric, and since we were getting uh, very praising of philosophy earlier, I do want to point out one note of, of warning about philosophy. For both rhetoric and philosophy for LD, um, be very careful because I think this is where – this at least is my struggle and why uh, when we've done practice rounds, other people have judged. You usually beat me when we do LD stuff because uh, it it is possible to get distracted by the philosophy and essentially forget your warrant for your claims, and you kind of go all in on – Uh, I have mastered John Locke's social contract theory, so I have talked for five of my seven minutes or four of my six minutes about social contract theory, and I don't have any time left really for claims. No,
1: because the principle is supposed to be an umbrella, not necessarily the entire debate. Everything flows under and back to the umbrella.
0: So really just for some time suggestions on the case— If I were writing this case, I would want that opening quote or story to be about 15 to 30 seconds
1: yeah, so that
0: I can affirm or negate the resolution and get my value and value criterion out in a single minute and so that that leaves me the bulk of time for my contentions because you want to establish all of your introductory stuff. It's vital. It's going to control the round. But you establish that so that you can get to your contentions. And you want to spend a ton of time and on really working through your claim and your warrant to establish the weight of your impacts. And don't use personal stories.
1: I don't know if I'm – like don't talk about that time that you civilly disobeyed your mom and didn't – and like ate cookies or something. <laughs> like I don't know if – that's a mistake I would have made. And I'm sure not all of these are like first-time debaters either. But personal stories are not for debate. And a quote, yeah. I'm telling you. It's an easy way to start a case, and it's a great way to start a case. And it just – just explain the quote. Two or three sentences, move on to definitions, get them out quick, value criteria, and arguments. It's seven. just – and you get extra time in LD. It's longer than public forum as well. Yeah, it's uh, six minutes for the – no. I think it's five for affirmative constructive, then if negative gets six.
0: I think it's seven because negative is supposed to have constructive and time. We'll, we'll, we'll look – Ethan will look this up. Uh, okay. Uh, So with that, I I think the best LD rounds really demonstrate an understanding of philosophy uh, and principles in text that apply to real world scenarios. So what we're really going for is establishing a philosophical idea or framework, but then really the bulk of your case needs to be spent on the actual evidence. Okay, what are those times?
1: So I have a, the affirmative gets six minute constructive, there's a three minute cross-examination period, but it's not cross, right? Because negative asks affirmative questions about yeah, the case. Yeah,
0: it's, 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 it's cross it's not cross-fire. It's not cross-examination. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. then
1: the negative for three minutes will ask questions of, of the affirmative about their case. Negative gets seven minutes to build a constructive, then the affirmative gets three minutes for questions. Then the affirmative will go on to have a four-minute rebuttal. Negative gets a six-minute rebuttal, and affirmative gets the final three-minute rebuttal. This is because the affirmative is typically the harder side to argue, so they get the final word of the debate, that final three minutes, but negative gets larger chunks of time, so they can go over all the stuff the affirmative has said. That's just a basic rundown of like LD timing strategy.
0: Okay. Well, with that, let's move into some research suggestions. Uh, So... Uh, all right, we're going to do this in terms of AF and then some suggestions on NEG. So where where should we start with researching this case? Civil rights movement. How about values? Well, let's get to values here. I think we'll get to values here at the okay. end. So what let's, about, let's why don't we start... start with the civil rights yeah.
1: movement? Okay, so a lot of people tend to focus on the civil rights movement because there's tons of examples of civil disobedience, and it usually fits the affirmative's desired definition of civil disobedience because it's nonviolent and it was effective. So like, what else could you ask for, right? It's civil disobedience, it's nonviolent, and it worked, and it brought about a great result that still like rings today. So you could go to Martin Luther King Jr. You could, go ahead. So, okay, this go is ahead. the part
0: of our show that is going to be uh, maybe a bit cringeworthy. We'll, we'll see. Ethan's already cringing, even as he said, MLK Jr. Uh, this, this, and I'm going to do this rather, rather quickly. Um, so when you go and research the civil rights movement, you should be aware of a couple things. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was a huge advocate for nonviolent change. And so he's a great example of civil disobedience's nonviolent strategy. His opposite is a guy named Malcolm X who founded a uh, black nationalist, sometimes called terrorist organization, called the Black Panthers. They were much more revolutionary. They were ready for violent change today. Dr. King was ready for slow change that is achieved mostly legislatively and willing to kind of walk a slow route of demonstrating suffering to say what, to show people that something needed to change. The problem with this is that over the last year, there was a historian whose name I didn't grab. and I'll, I'll put this in the, in the show description. A uh, historian from, uh, who, was look, who found a ton of information about Dr. King that was recently released through uh, the National Archives, released transcripts of wiretaps that the FBI did on Dr. King. And through these transcripts, this historian discovered a couple things that means Dr. King is uh, quite complicit in rape. Uh, The most problematic thing that was found out about him is that he was recorded as literally cheering on a friend who is raping an African-American woman. Both men in this story, Dr. King and his friend, were pastors in their church organization. Now, let me be clear about what I'm suggesting about that information. That information does not invalidate Dr. King's moral stance. The letter from a Birmingham jail remains one of the most amazing instances of humane reasoning. Dr. King saw an awful lot of oppression, and he led a movement that helped change a lot of that oppression. But this article and the backlash from it, uh, a lot of American newspapers did not want to tell this story. It was broken. The story was broken by a British magazine and has since become kind of mainstream. The Economist reported on it. Various other newspapers have picked it up. This story complicates Dr. King's legacy and his narrative. So here's what that means for you as a debater researching this case. Uh, do not hang your entire case on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. If you do, you open yourself up for your opponent to respond with something like, well, Dr. King sat there and cheered on the rape of this woman. He is not a moral leader. And therefore your movement is, you cannot say that anything he's associated with is morally justified. That is a really, really weak argument that commits at least two logical fallacies. It's a kind of ad hominem and it's a kind of genetic fallacy but what it would do is weaken your case if your entire case is built on martin luther king jr quotes so i would strongly advise not to hand put your case entirely on him dr king is part of a much broader civil rights movement i would want to look at the whole civil rights movement i mentioned rosa parks yeah, earlier the sit-ins example. the march on dc all of those some of those moments where the uh the fire department is hosing down people on the streets of birmingham those are places that you should focus on. I would steer away from hanging my entire case on Dr. King. So that's completely fair. Gandhi
1: is another great example in yep. India, and the Salt March is another place you could look for civil disobedience. Gandhi is just a, I mean, a great example of civil disobedience, and yep. look, it worked. Like India is no longer under the control of the British, and he did a good job, and he was very dedicated to his cause. I know he like starved himself at one point, didn't? Did yep. not? He yeah, was, uh, he Which was. Which is not breaking the law, right? But
0: no, and it, it, it there's, it's a very effective one. Uh, so it's, he did what's called a hunger strike. Okay. So he, he's, he's not going to eat in order to demonstrate the plight of India under British oppression.
1: But either way, it, it indicates his dedication to the cause. It so does. He, Gandhi's a great example. Nelson Mandela in South Africa as well. His prison sentence is a great place to go. And hunger strikes, and on the outline it says... Like,
0: one quick note about the... Um, uh, Nelson Mandela in order to get there uh, so Nelson Mandela is, he's a little tricky you have to make a couple steps to be able to use him as an example of civil disobedience I think uh, you need to establish that he was imprisoned for his being part of a revolutionary group But he remained in prison for so long that he became a symbol of civil disobedience through his imprisonment. So he was he's not quite as easy to use an example as uh, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. But he is a, I think he's a great example to be able to pull from. But you have to make a couple steps to be able to to get there. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Should we move on to Neg? We probably should. Uh, So I thought my my first example for Neg uh, would actually be, I would be, on the neg side, I want to be able to find examples of massive societal change that occurred through legislative effort. So the first place I want to get to, uh, I, I would look at there is England's abolition of slavery through parliament. Uh, And that's, that's really uh, a, that's, that was the work of a guy named William Wilberforce. Do you know Wilberforce and his story? Not, not like entirely, but I've heard the name in like general. Yeah, he was uh, in the turn of the 18th century, so the late 1700s into the early 1800s. He starts off as a young parliamentarian and uh, he eventually is, I mean, he's, he's a rising star. He's a rhetorical genius. His speeches become models of effective parliamentary discourse. Uh, But he converts to Christianity uh, later in life in his 30s, I believe. And as part of that, as part of his conversion, he then becomes absolutely convinced that the slave trade is immoral. And so he dedicated his parliamentary career to recognizing the full human dignity of the slave, and uh, he spent 30 years fighting every day in parliament to get rid of the slave trade through the passage of a bill. And so, uh, my pastor does one. He does one biographical sermon a year. We'll we'll link his. We'll link the sermon in the show notes because uh, it's a great thirty-five minute summary of William Wilberforce's life with reference to a couple historical historians and a couple articles that kind of go over the information. Um, now, we'll, so Wilberforce achieved the abolition of slavery, and England got out of uh, shipping or and selling slaves thirty years before the Americans did. We Americans fought a civil, we fought the bloodiest war of our history leading to the death of, it's over a hundred million people die in the American Civil War in order to settle the question of slavery. England did it through normal means in Parliament. So I would look at that as an example to say, oh yeah, civil disobedience isn't what's necessary. What's necessary is persuasion through legislate, the legislative process. Any other places you would look for, for Nag, Ethan? Um, one just one thing on Wilberforce. Do you
1: just a question for you as like a debater and a coach as well? Would the affirmative be able to come back and say that Wilberforce is a unique example and that's not typically how very large problems get solved because he was a talented parliamentary you know like individual that was able to convince I,
0: people. I don't think so because it wasn't just him. Part of his story is that he was really – he is the – he's one of a team of several people that were all working for this. And it was – it really showed how – and it part of their movement and honestly part of what happens over this 30-year deal is that he wins over societal agreement for his cause. So one of the differences is – so in 1865, you have the American – you have the Union victory over the Confederacy and the Civil War is over and slavery is abolished by Union victory. Well, what that creates in the South is a lot of animosity against these newly freed slaves. There's not agreement that these newly freed slaves should be full equal members of society. What I think could be really interesting would be to look at the difference between uh, the United States solves slavery through a war, which you could take as a revolutionary act in a way. You could read that as a violent act to solve a social problem. Uh, versus England does that well. Look at how much better race relations are in England today, 100 or 180 years later, versus race relations in the United States, where only two years ago we kept having, uh, we had that string of police shootings of African Americans that created a huge national conversation. We had the Black Lives Matter movement. We've got all of the issues surrounding President Trump and racial division and all that stuff. Now, and I'm not even speaking right now as to whether any of that's true or not, but simply on the level of what's the result of those two ways of solving the problem? I think there's ground for Neg to say, look, when you go this slower legislative route, it creates a social consensus that leads to a much more positive application of change rather than, okay, yes, you've changed it today, but that doesn't change people's hearts. I think that's a great way
1: of explaining it. How yeah. about you do the rest of Neg, and I want to talk about values Okay, first. good.
0: That sounds that sounds fine. Um, so I would then also want to look at South Africa uh, much more immediately. Because if you look at South Africa right when Nelson Mandela is released, you can easily use Nelson Mandela as evidence for the affirmative. But if you look at Nelson Mandela, uh, or you look at what happens to South Africa after Mandela's death, what you see is that Nelson Mandela or is at... Nelson Mandela was a check on a very revolutionary and violent revolutionary view in South Africa. With most, I'd point most recently to the black South Africans nationalizing white South Africans' property and doing that through their, the government. So that would be, I would look at that as, as evidence that civil disobedience often grows violent, uh, is what I would use that to then support on the neg. So I would use that to say, look, if you allow civil disobedience and praise civil disobedience, you are weakening a view of law, and that's going to lead to social chaos and the collapse of whatever it is that holds a society together. Uh, One other place that you could look at on Neg. I think Neg is honestly kind of harder to find examples for because you have to. Neg is very
1: philosophical in its argument. We,
0: I think we, we tend by the year 2019, we tend to, uh, favor the revolutionary or we favor the one who is advocating for the oppressed. It's harder for us to come up with arguments that are accepting or arguing for a more conservative point of view and say, no, no. There's a reason we do it that way, and here's the reason.
1: I think it, to even phrase that in another way too is that we like to advocate for people who are advocating change. Yeah. Another way to put it.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a good way to phrase it. Well, so one place I would look at is um, I'd want to also on NEG I would look at contemporary college campuses and the problems that they have created for themselves by encouraging uh, campus protest and civil disobedience on campus and really teaching those as habits of mind and habits of reaction to college students. One place where that obviously came into play is Middlebury College, uh, where they've now had two different occasions. Uh, One was Charles Murray. The other was the um, European Parliamentary Member, He's connected to Poland, and I'm blanking on his name. But he had a—he recently had an article in First Things about his experience when he was invited to Middlebury College, where in both of these examples, student bo- the student body created a dangerous environment for their invited guest, such so that the school campus ended up disinviting uh, the most recent speaker that I mentioned. Um, it's not Orban; it's a—it's a different guy. His name had—it was a—it was a very Eastern European spelling. I had trouble remembering it. Anyway, uh, so the problem there is that uh, is, uh, Alan, um, not Alan Jacobs, Al, uh, Alan Bloom, I think is his name, wrote a book a few years ago called The Closing of the American Mind. I think you could make an easy argument to say that when colleges encourage civil disobedience, they actually encourage students to destroy the very atmosphere that allows free discussion of ideas. And in doing that, they are, they're actually diminishing the value of college. Colleges don't really exist to allow social change. They exist, they, the product, the service that is being marketed and sold is education. In endless chaos and an endless revolutionary fervor, education cannot happen. Education requires some level of stability for that to occur. So I think you could easily look at that and say, well, let's look at even on a smaller scale than national revolution. Let's look at the scale of the closed community of the college campus. What happens when college campuses encourage an attitude of civil disobedience?
1: I think that's a good place to look. I'm not entirely sold for the simple matter that it may be reducing it down to the smallest little size of a college campus. But if NEG uses a value like rule of law, you couldn't necessarily argue like, Like, look, campus law is broken here, so that's bad. But the affirmative has a case arguing for like all of humanity, like that at least lives in the United States civil rights movement kind of thing. So to
0: which I would probably counter if we were having this actual debate. Okay. Let's do I it. would counter that by saying the college campus is actually its own closed political unit where you have people who are citizens of the college community for four years undergrad and then they get separate citizenship status at grad school. They are governed by a code of laws that's established by the Board of Trustees and governed by the President and the faculty and however that's arranged, and that people consent to be under that rule of law for that time period, and that they are doing that for the purpose of forming a community that that is oriented towards education. And so I would argue that, okay, on the one hand, we can look at this vast, grand scale. What can we really know about a scale of all of humanity? Actually, we can probably know a lot more about the closed community of 1,500 on a small college campus or at 50,000 on a larger university campus like the Ohio State University size. We can actually see something much more clearly on that smaller scale that we could then know something more definitively as opposed to the generalizable this is what happens on all humanity on a civilizational scale and look at our 360 million citizens and we can know something much more definitive than on a small scale. It's at least how I would counter that.
1: It's too limited. It's too small. Fifteen hundred to fifteen thousand people and arguing a value like rule of law, like yes, maybe maybe you can view things through a specific lens to help gain more information about it. But you know what affirmative is going to do. They're going to come back. Look, it's just a cute little college campus that you're talking about. It's like protests. And that's unique because, and that's like not a good oh. example to encapsulate the whole thing because, but we're not here to debate this with each I other. I know, I know. So, I just want to
0: impact that out. I like, know you do. Here's where they, do. the college students of today are learning the habits that become the habits of the citizen of tomorrow. So what happens on the college campus becomes the electoral practices 30 years later. Sure. All, All right. right.
1: Anyways, <laughs> on to values. What you got? Okay. This is a really beautiful place where values come together. You always see this pretty much with any resolution. It's the ideal versus the pragmatic. It happens every time. And almost every time negative is on the pragmatic side and affirmative is on the ideal side. What affirmative is arguing for is truthfully very ideal because they're arguing for pure civil disobedience, acting in a democracy where people have the right, like the rule of law and they're, they're part of the government is morally justified. It's morally justified, why? Because it, it's free. It's freedom, it's like liberation, it's free thinking and allowing people to do, fulfill their purpose in democracy. And Ned comes back like, that's great, except here's what it actually does when you put it into place. And then the whole question of the resolution becomes on the broadest level possible. Well, are we arguing for what's ideal or what's pragmatic and what's more important? That's for you guys to hash out in the rounds. But it always comes down to ideal versus pragmatism. So for for we'll start, I guess, with affirmative values. For my last case, I used freedom as the value and free thinking as the criterion. And I grimaced when I looked at it. When I look back at my case, but now I don't think I hated that much. I think it's like, yeah, it's like <laughs> I think that? you convinced me because freedom. Uh, you could tie it to the democracy part by saying the individual needs the freedom of being an individual in order to properly participate in a democracy and fulfill their purpose of a citizen in a society. If you're, if you don't have that type of freedom, you can't actively and accurately and participate well in a democracy. I mean you can define that as however you want. Freedom is a really broad word. But and the criterion for that as free thinking, what do you need to achieve freedom? You need the ability to think freely and I guess in this case civil disobedience is kind of a manifestation of your thinking or your disagreement with a certain policy and you're willing to accept the punishment for it that's one way you could go human dignity i know you put on the outline is i guess another way you could go and justice as well i see you put justice on here i did how about you give your teeny little constructor for justice i have one problem with it that i will voice after you explain it
0: sure so i would want to i think justice. there's i'm going to suggest two and then i'll toss it back your way so I think you could run justice as a value, and I would define that from John Rawls. Uh, and he defi- he's he got a, several different books, but he's, the best quote for this is justice is fairness. Where he explains that justice is really what you would imagine a every member of a society getting if you, did not, if you were going to give all of the things to members of the society and you didn't know where you were going to be in that society. So you could be rich, you could be poor, you could be powerful, you could be powerless. What would you imagine everyone in this society should get? And he says that, that's fairness, and then justice is that fairness. So that's what we really should be seeking to create. And then to do that, then I would, look, I would assert my value criterion as equality before the law. And I would want to then build a case on that, looking at uh, all of the different places where people are not actually treated as equal before the law, and how civil disobedience is a way of showing how wrong it is to be treated differently before the law, and that that then prompts a change in the law, which is going to lead us to better achieve the value of justice in society.
1: I think justice is almost always a value you hear on NEG, so that's why it resonates a little bit. Di- it really? but You disagree?
0: Why? I don't know why. It's okay, make the case. How would justice work as a neg Because
1: behavior? when you think about justice, the affirmative, like I said, is arguing the ideal position. And the way you define justice using John Rawls is a very ideal view of justice. But when people want to talk about enacting justice, it always goes to the government and how the government decides, like how they have, you know, what is it, a monopoly on force, allowed to use force, and how do you practically put justice in the world? The government's usually the answer. So that's why NEG is always always so closely attached to justice. You almost always see it on NEG. In this case, I could probably, I don't know if I could see it as easily on NEG, but there are some good ones that we'll get into in a minute. But equality before the law, I think, is a little vague because the affirmative, sorry, the negative came back in, like, everyone's equal before the law. And at least- Well, not
0: if you're looking at the civil rights era.
1: I guess I mean, and that's, that's where again that's, that's tying where this, it to a specific example.
0: Well, it's tying it to a body of examples, and that's that's, true. that's really tying into this existing library of examples to say here's why civil disobedience was so effective, and here's why it was right. But then, if you because have... it showed that white people and black people are essentially the same, so nobody should get preference in bus seating. Okay, and they showed that, and it becomes very concrete. And I think it's a good way that's to true. show the judge. Here's why civil disobedience is morally justifiable because it's showing a lack of fairness and then it illustrating how we can change to become more just.
1: If you define justice as fairness and then someone argues that in a society what's fair is what you've signed off to to be a citizen of that society, then the, justi- the government is acting justice on you to punish you for breaking the law. Is now, if you not-
0: run that argument on me, I'm going to start by saying I never signed up for anything. The the social contract. Uh, I'm assuming you're referring to social contract theory uh, there, yes. which is a giant imagination, imaginary thing. It's just as real as Plato's theory of the forms. The social contract theory is a way of explaining society, but I never signed on. Okay, I was born into a certain society and I've grown up in this society. I never necessarily consented to it. Now you can sit there and tell me, oh, you could leave. My no, guess. I can't. Not really. Like. It would be hugely difficult for me to pick up and learn a new language, a new culture, a new career, all the things. But I never signed on to it. So the the social contract theory is a theory. It's a way of explaining things. But you can't lean on that to tell me that that's why an action is just or unjust. I think we're getting
1: on a little bit of a tangent, so I'm just going to close with this. Fair. Justice is almost always used on negative. I'm not saying it can't be used on affirmative. And it's, this is probably tainted by my many debates I've had, and justice always being on the negative, so I can't see it as an affirmative value. Okay. So that's definitely a bias I'll lay out there to be fair with. But if someone tries to come back and say that justice is defined as how the government acts back towards its people, its fairness between the the government and the people, like I don't like arguing that our value justice, is why I never do it. But if I'm gonna try, <laughs> if I'm gonna try, okay. not that I hate justice, is that the government will do justice to its people when it harms when it breaks the law. Or when the people, the body of people breaks the law.
0: Well,
1: I mean, are We're ahead, stopping. We're, yeah, we're not going to argue it anymore. Well. But... You can.
0: <laughs> I'm just going to refer anyone who's ahead. curious about justice. We have a whole episode on different yes, views of justice. Yes, we do have an episode on justice. I went to a conference that talked about five different historical views of justice and did an episode on that. That's back in our catalog. I think it's episode... Yeah.
1: I mean, 20s somewhere. 15, 15-ish. 18, yeah. somewhere around there. Okay, but regardless, justice you could probably use on affirmative. I like freedom better. I think freedom plays more into the ideal narrative that affirmative lays out. It's like, these people are people. They deserve freedom. And what happens when you have freedom? you have freedom? measure it, free thinking. When people think freely, oppression goes away. It's like a beautiful, comprehensive case. It just, it ties everything together so well, I would completely recommend freedom. Free thinking may be a little vague. You might want to play with the criteria in there a little bit, but um, do you have any suggestion of an alternative criterion you would use?
0: Not really for freedom. I think free thinking or, um, I mean, uh, my thought this time, at least thinking through this resolution, has been a lot more about equality and access. So if you were going to do freedom, I might... And again, I guess I'm thinking more about civil rights era violations, but I'm thinking uh, maybe uh, acts, just the, the, the rule of the day was separate but equal, but where there were separate schools, black schools and white schools, they were never equal. Separate water fountains, they were never equal. Separate bathrooms, they were never equal. So I would want to look at the fact if you were going to do freedom and then say I would want to do something tying in equality or maybe even on a totally different one, I'm still interested in trying to explore equal access to social capital and social mobility.
1: I have John Bagwell is listening to this, and he can tell me if I got this wrong. He said this great analogy. is like equality is everyone gets the same size bike, but justice is everyone gets the size bike that's right for him. It may not I have been justice. Like it may have I been like a different that. word, but... Um, that's just food for thought there, because if affirmative uses value as equality, it's like, well, no, everyone can't always be equal. But again, I'm not here to debate it. I'm here to just give some suggestions. I think we're going to move on to neg now. It sounds good, because so, I'm
0: keeping track of our time. We're getting to a lengthy episode. Let's, yeah, this is
1: going... We have gotten lots of tangents. We but have, but that's okay. The affirmative has, again, an ideal stance. The negative, I think, is usually easier to define the value, because it's more it's more like solid and kind of... In my, in my view, authoritative, because negative always seems authoritative to me. Um, there's two suggestions here. I think they're both great. Order and rule of law are the two that we have. For values. For yeah. values, yes. Rule of law being the first one with the value criterion of governmental stability. Basically, allowing or like morally endorsing, maybe is the right word, people to break the law is not the way that you keep a comprehensive society in place. Yeah. And rule of law is important because it's there for a reason, And that reason is to protect the people. So you can maybe even use safety as an example because even in the civil rights movement... I wouldn't necessarily
0: go to safety. I think I would instead go... I would want to be looking for examples of where has rule of law collapsed and what happens in those scenarios. So Somalia is a great example today where their government literally collapsed. And as bad as a bad government might be, it's nothing compared to the chaos that arrives when there is no one protecting anyone from anyone else.
1: And there's plenty of examples with civil disobedience going wrong. Like Nelson Mandela was originally a revolutionary and I guess he turned into more civil disobedience. So I guess that's an example in reverse. But you, there are examples out there where you can find that civil disobedience, something started civil and then it went to the extreme yeah. and it got violent. So the affirmative is saying, look, civil disobedience is great, it does this. Negative comes back and says, yeah, but every time we try civil disobedience or too much of the time when we try civil disobedience, it. Turns turns into something violent. The affirmative is like, well that's not truly civil disobedience. And the negative is like, well that's what happens when you enact civil disobedience. And it's like a never ending refutation. Right. So those are the best kind of debates.
0: Really and so one last suggestion then might be to look at order. Yes order is what I would use.
1: I would completely use order as a
0: value. And on value criterion there, I might want to look at economic prosperity as my measurement of order because what happens in an ordered society is you're going to see economic prosperity increase. You can have an overarching authoritative government, but when it establishes order, you actually have, uh, you have an increase in economic prosperity, which ultimately allows people to have the freedom to live as they want. And you start to see social change because uh, people from one economic class rise to another, and they enact different changes. So that economic prosperity can be another mechanism to enable social change. As You're making faces. I am making
1: so many faces right now. As, an ex- as a relatively experienced debater that's seen rounds and seen economic arguments and order arguments, here's my very biased opinion of this. No. Just no. <laughs> Just no. No, I, this is, I've never said this on this podcast before, and I probably won't say it again, but do not listen to Josh. <laughs> you, it, it says, you want to see the resolution again? Take a look at this resolution. It's right here. Civil disobedience in a democracy is morally justified. Don't bring the economy into this. The economy does not morally justify things. And... Um, oh you mean, man! money doesn't make things good. Easily? Stop! I'm not doing this. <laughs> Basically, here's a great thing on neg. You can use utilitarianism as here's a, you don't even tie it to money. Don't do it. But here's the deal. You're shooting There's down a difference. My,
0: my economic know, argument, and you're
1: bringing in Something whatever works. works is right. You're Look, bringing
0: in utilitarianism.
1: Hear me out. There's a difference between a value and a criterion and a framework, and I'm not sure as a debater that I've even distinguished all of them from each other. But if you look at it from a really overarching perspective, affirmative is arguing for a an ideal, whether you use freedom or justice, negative is arguing for something pragmatic, and usually the way Neg likes to argue, or to, likes to measure things is what they call consequentialism, which is tied to utilitarianism, which is basically what's best for the greatest amount of people is what's considered good. And again, it's very practical. You could literally count, like it's benefiting this many people, harming this many people, we're good to go. And it's a very dehumanizing way to to account for morality. But the economy, as far as economy goes, I don't know what I would propose in in as an alternative to that criterion but the economy has no place in this debate do not bring the economy into this moral debate that's ruined
0: that's like ruining ld you're just bringing like policy no no, no it's not it's no, looking don't at do it. it's I'm... it's it's looking at the necessary connection between order and economic prosperity where there is no order there cannot be any economic prosperity so why Which isn't economic
1: mean... prosperity the value and order the
0: criterion if you're so concerned about well, because a... you can't really you can't go the other way around Economic prosperity demonstrates a certain level of order. You can't use order to say, well, because we have these rules in place, you're going to make money. Now, what that then would do, order is your way of saying something is is your way of meeting the morally justifiable part of the resolution. I'm yes. not he's saying the value criterion is reaching that level of what is morally justifiable. But the economy can be used to demonstrate order is what I'm advocating.
1: I will not debate it anymore because I, <laughs> I doubt I will budge on this just – from experience and stuff. I well, I saying do...
0: we should have a more free-flowing conversation on this episode, so hopefully we hit that. Yeah,
1: definitely. <laughs> so, can I, I'm going to close this out with some stuff. Since I, I suppose. Start
0: that at least. There's
1: a couple things I want to say at the end of this. If you're a novice debater that's just starting out, I was freaked out during my first tournament, but it ended up being a great experience, and debate, if you stick with it, will teach you a lot. You'll start to see connections between different things, like the economy and philosophy and just the world in general and politics and the environment and everything. It, just, it gives you a good fundamental knowledge to kind of bring along with you in everyday life. And it helps you see both sides of an important argument and many important arguments. So debate is a great thing for that. In order to do this debate well, there's a couple of things you have to do. You have to, for LD debate, you have to focus on the value and focus on your contentions meeting the value. But a good debater will always make sure not to lose track of all of the things that they need to keep track of. And it's a balanced game. You need to be able to juggle a lot of different things. You need to be able to juggle your rhetoric while not getting too vague and you need to stick to your arguments and stick to your evidence and make sure to bring it up at a, at a good time and you know not in the final speech, which is why I won that first round the, in the first place. You need to have good rhetoric, which comes with experience and practice and precision but your arguments are important too, connecting them to your value is important, but in the end you need to persuade your judge, just like that, we heard from that advice earlier. You're trying to persuade the judge, not the opponent. And I find that one of the most effective ways to do that is keeping calm and not going crazy in the rounds Because I've seen that happen at Ezra who is someone who I learned from at Coolidge was very calm in his delivery Granted he didn't win But he took second place in a tournament of
0: 81 competitors all nationally ranked before they arrived
1: Exactly, so presentation is key, persuasion is key Just bring a good case and if you practice it enough you'll come more confident than you would have otherwise So um, definitely take the game for what it is and Good luck.
0: The only thing I'll add to that uh, is that even though Ethan and I are currently disagreeing over economic prosperity as a value criterion, I would just strongly encourage uh, listeners that if you are going to compete in Lincoln-Douglas, recognize that it is its own version of debate. It's not policy. It's not public forum. It's not cross-ex. Uh, it's not Parley. It's Lincoln Douglas. Treat it as you would, a, as you would treat, uh, treat it as it deserves to be treated. So embrace the values-laden philosophical potential. Ride it as far as you will. And we'd love to hear back from you about uh, how th- how your rounds go, about whether uh, – if any of our suggestions uh, worked or if they didn't, please let us know. Uh, Ethan, how can how can people get in touch with us if yeah. they want to do that? If you have any
1: questions about anything we've said, you can email us at whatstherez at gmail.com. You can check out our website, www.whatstherez.com. We also have an Instagram page, a Twitter page, and a Reddit page, and a Facebook page. And you can find us at whatstherez underscore. And,
0: Yeah. That sounds great. Uh, So uh, we're recording this on August 2nd, and next week we'll have uh, episodes available for once we get the NSDA uh, Varsity Lincoln-Douglas and Varsity Public Forum Resolutions this year, we're also going to be doing, uh, at least once once a month, we'll be releasing a World School format uh, resolution analysis episode. We've got Coolidge debate format uh, resolution analysis episodes coming up. And uh, just in case you're interested in our premium debates, do check those out at whatstheres.podbean.com slash premium. And until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.